We're continuing our series today on the book of Philippians, a series entitled Basic Christianity. In life, there are often these times where we are trying to avoid corresponding pitfalls. You could say a ditch on one side or a ditch on the other side. So for instance, there are at least two ways to get a traffic ticket. You can get a ticket by going too fast, and you can also get a ticket by going too slow. Both will land you with a traffic ticket. There are at least two ways to ruin a meal. You can overcook it and thus burn it, or you can undercook it and serve it potentially raw or undercooked, and both are not desirable. So I was watching one of my kids this week scrape off Uh, the burnt stuff on some toast. Undesirable. There are at least two ways to guarantee you'll have a problem with a bolt. And I've had a problem in both of these ways. If you tighten it too much, or if you don't tighten it tight enough. One time, I was putting a car tire back on the car, and I over-tightened the nut onto the bolt, snapped the bolt clean off. And that was an expensive and memorable occasion for me. And so we know in life there are these corresponding pitfalls that we're trying to avoid. And the Bible tells us that this is the same with salvation. There are at least two ways to perish. A person can choose to hold on to their sin and perish, or a person can choose to hold on to their righteousness. And perish. Both are detrimental. And it's this latter example, this latter pitfall that Philippians 3 focuses in on. Holding on to our so-called righteousness. Now, why is it that, what is righteousness and why does righteousness matter? Well, righteousness simply is right standing with God. It's living a life in conformity to God's revealed will, both doing what he says to do and avoiding what he says to avoid. And why does righteousness matter? Well, it matters because everyone needs righteousness in order to stand before God, in order to stand in her judgment. Only the righteous will stand in judgment. And so the problem that the Bible addresses from Genesis 3 until Revelation is that there is no one righteous, no, not one. You know, when we buy or you buy a, um, an electronic device like a computer or a phone, it has the default settings where it, this is how, these are the settings and you have to change it to be different. Well, Our default setting as humans since the fall of Adam and Eve is that we are all unrighteous. And there is nothing that we can do to fix this problem. Some people think, I can change my default setting. I can obey. I can observe the things of God. I can become righteous. And that is a delusional, a delusional pitfall. We need righteousness 
God provides the solution. God provides his own righteousness. And he credits it to us as we trust in Jesus alone. We sang about it this morning as we talked about clinging not to what we've done, but clinging to what he has done. What God requires, he has provided. That is good news this morning. That is why if if that wasn't the case, I would have nothing good to say to you this morning. But we have good news to celebrate because what God requires, he provides. So a person who decides to hold to their sin will perish. And a person who decides to hold to their so-called righteousness will likewise perish. And Paul deals with this second category, holding to one's so-called righteousness, because apparently as he was planting the churches, as he was going from one church to another and planting them, there were also people promoting this kind of false teaching, a false gospel. And so he sounds the warning. That's what's going on in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Just as he enthusiastically commended Timothy and Epaphroditus as worthy examples of humility to be followed, so he sternly warns against following any who are seeking to hold to righteousness other than the righteousness of Christ. And so we'll see this in the passage this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Philippians 3, let's begin reading together in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to receive everything you have for us this morning. And I pray you would prepare our hearts to receive the warning of these verses as well as the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That, Lord, we would be sobered and warned and we would be delighted, as we sang earlier, my delight and my reward. Oh, Lord, thank you for preserving things in your word to guard us. And thank you for preserving in your word, Lord, things that delight us not just now, but for all eternity. And so I pray, Lord, you'd help us to receive from you, to walk in the good of the light that you give, to behold our Lord Jesus Christ afresh. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us today as we consider our own lives and many of the things in this passage that your warning against may be operating in our own hearts and lives. Lord, I pray that you would give conviction and hope and faith for change. We thank you, we bless you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 3, Paul continues what he began in chapter 2, verse 19, where he is pointing out different examples. He had pointed out in Timothy and Epaphroditus examples of Christ's humility. And now he says in, in verse 1 here of Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. That's the command. He's, he's commanding, he's calling the Philippians, to find their joy in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of places we can look to for joy. A lot of places we can put our joy. And we're commanded, find your joy in Jesus Christ and in his great salvation. And then Paul utters these curious words in verse 1. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. He's writing something they've heard before, likely when Paul was in Philippi. But he says, no, repeating this, it's no trouble. Instead, it brings safety. It brings stability. You know, so often when we come to God's word, we're not necessarily coming because we need to learn something brand new. As though, oh, I had never known that before. That happens. And I'm so grateful that that happens. But a good part of coming to God's word and sitting under the preach word together is being reminded of things like, yeah, I've heard that before. And yet the stability and the safety that comes to us by these reminders. To eat the same thing over and over again is boring. And our taste buds long for something new. But to hear the same things, church, he says, is safe for you. 
we, we need the warnings and we need the promises of Scripture. And, you know, you could call Grace Covenant Church, you could call us, we're a, we're a same things church. You will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over again. And it is no trouble, but it is safe for us to be gathered under the gospel. And so the Philippians are to rejoice and we're to rejoice in the Lord. And then Paul talks about, though, because there's something that can easily rob them and us of joy. I call it a dangerous alternative. One commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, calls verse 2 a violent warning, certainly among the strongest sentences in all of Paul's letters. Look at verse 2 again. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, if you heard this, who would you be looking out for? We, we want to know, who is this? Well, these are three titles that are given to speak of the same group of people. Ju- uh, theologians call them Judaizers. And they were Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but they taught a Jesus plus theology. So you need Jesus, but you also need these other things. And for them, the other things was obedience to the Old Testament ceremonial law. And they particularly would seek out Gentiles and they would say, okay, you're not Jewish, but you have believed on Jesus. Good step one, but now you need to become Jewish. You need to take on the signs of Judaism. And so these Judaizers would come after Paul planted churches and they would teach this Jesus plus theology. We see this showing up in several of Paul's letters. This is very prominent in his letter to the Galatians. We know that they had quite a foothold there. Now, we don't know if they had come to Philippi yet. We don't know if they had drawn away disciples after them. Um, But Paul issues this stern warning. He calls them dogs. Now, dogs back then was not a a very good term. I mean, it's not like, hey, what's up, dog? It's, It's a bad term. And it's usually Jews would call Gentiles dogs. They considered, a Jew would consider Gentiles ceremonially unclean and they would call them dogs. But Paul flips the term and refers to them. They, these Judaizers, are the dogs. And then he calls them evildoers. They would show up at churches. They would look helpful. They would be saying, hey, we're going to bring you into a deeper, more secure, more full relationship with God. This is all you got to do. And it seemed helpful. And he says, no, no, no. What they're doing is straight up evil. And then he says, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. This is an Old Testament word, shows up quite a bit in the Old Testament for the Canaanites who would cut themselves out of honor for their false god. 
They would do all these things to, out of worship to a false god. And God said, no, don't be like those nations around you who mutilate the flesh. And he says, actually, now this applies to Jews who are insisting that Gentiles be circumcised. Now, there are things down through the ages that Christians disagree about. We agree to disagree There are gray areas, gray matters, where Christians have different convictions or interpretations about God's word. And so you have to ask, why does this rise to such a high level for Paul that he would be calling them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh? Well, because what they are proposing cuts at the heart of the gospel. It undercuts the finished work of Jesus Christ. It encourages people to pursue the very works that they should be relinquishing. And so it is not orthodox. This is not like a different denomination. This is heterodox. It is wrong. It is evil. And listen, church, it's appealing. It is very appealing. I've heard over the years, I've heard it packaged in many different forms. I've heard where people say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. But wow, what a blessing when we started celebrating these Jewish feasts. God even says in the Old Testament, these feasts are perpetual. So they back it up. Hey, look, look at this verse. I've heard people say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but man, there is such fullness in the sacraments and church tradition of our church. And people often get sucked into things that feel like they're going to give us progress and fullness. And so he uses this strong warning three times. Look out! Look out. Look out. In the New Testament, this word look out, it's used quite a bit. It's translated in a number of different ways. It's translated pay attention. Beware. See to it. Be on your guard. Take care. Watch. But out of all the times it's used, this is the only verse where it is used three times in the same verse. Look out. Look out for the teaching that appears helpful, that makes you feel like you're making progress, but effectively undercuts the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so he sounds the alarm. Look out. And then in verse 3, he states why this is a dangerous alternative. What's missing Well, he says, verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, just for a moment, this could be possibly the most shocking verse in all of Philippians to those that are reading it, Jew and Gentile alike, because it Circumcision was a sign, a covenant sign, that an Israelite 
was a part of the people of God. They are his covenant people. And in contrast to these Judaizers who have this sign, and they would say, oh yeah, my father, it goes all the way back to Abraham. We've been God's people for a long time. In contrast to them, Paul says, no, they're the dogs. They're the evildoers. They're the ones who don't know God. We, Christians, are the circumcision. We're his covenant people. This, I mean, it's absolutely astounding. Colossians 2.11 puts it in these words. It says, in him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The mark that someone belongs to God is no longer an outward sign. Even in Old Testament Israel, they realize the limitations of having an outward sign. The marks of a true Christian are there in verse 3. We worship by the Spirit of God. That is, we have the Spirit of God inside of us. That's what makes a person a Christian. We glory, number two, we glory or boast in Jesus Christ. And number three, we put no confidence in the flesh, that is, in the things that we do. And to show what this means to put no confidence in the flesh, Paul puts on an exhibit for them of here's what I mean by that. He lists his credentials, the good things that he either has in his history or has done that he could say, well, that makes me better in the sight of God, or that could save me, or if somebody could earn salvation, Paul could have earned it. Look at his list. He was the guy. He was a good Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's exactly what God told Abraham and his descendants to do. So his parents did that. Check that box. His pedigree, he says, I'm of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. So even though he didn't grow up in Israel, he is fully Jewish and he can trace his genealogy. Check those two boxes. It says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. So even though he was born in Tarsus, he maintained his identity and spoke the language of the people of God. Hebrew, check that box. When he chose a course in life, he chose the life of a Pharisee. They were the most serious and meticulous about keeping the law of God. There was nobody more strict than Pharisees. Check that box. He is so zealous about Judaism, he even traveled to persecute the church of Jesus Christ as though it was false. And so he hunted people down. And then he says, according to righteousness in the law, he was blameless. That is, if anybody could have obeyed God and gotten saved, he's the guy. So he lists all these things. And, it, and he's basically saying, if what these Judaizers is saying is true, Paul could have done it. But then Paul made a decisive break. A decisive break. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, it is basic to life for a person to learn how to count. You learn how to count at a very young age. Well, basic Christianity involves another kind of counting that Paul models here in these verses. In the column that was once marked gain at the top and had the list of his keeping the law, his pedigree, his Pharisaism, his zeal, he now crosses out the word gain and writes loss. I mean, it's like getting a bank statement and realizing that whole column that you thought was deposits was actually expenses and going, oh, no. And so he, that's what he's, he realized as the Lord saved him. He said, I thought, I thought these things would commend me to God. I thought these things would give me a leg up. And then I realized they don't. My righteousness is really no righteousness at all. And so he made a decisive break. And in Paul's case, by the time he's writing the Philippians, he had made this break over 30 years ago to say, whatever I had that I could have said is gain, I counted as loss. He renounced self-righteousness in order to gain Christ. And then in verse 8, we are brought into the present. He is still renouncing. He says, indeed, I count, presently, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul is still, 30 years later, counting anything and everything that he might possibly trust in to commend him to God, to save him, he counts it as loss. The value is not in my parents' religion. The value is not in my heritage or my deeds. Look at here, the surpassing worth, the surpassing value is in knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. Every word in that is just absolutely precious because it's so endearing. Church, this is why we are to reject any additions to the finished work of Christ because there's already fullness in Christ. Everything we need, his sacrifice was enough to atone for past sin, present sin, future sin, It's enough. Christ is already gain. And the surpassing worth is nothing you and I bring to the table. But everything that Christ has already brought for us. One writer, Phil Riken, he says, The best thing, the most valuable thing, the surpassingly great thing was to know Christ and to be found in him. Paul gave up everything else to be united to Jesus Christ and to find salvation in him by faith. And his testimony is a reminder that we can find true identity only in Jesus. Not in religious activity, 
theological affiliation, or public notoriety, but only in Christ alone. Now Paul arrived at this place by making a decisive break from what he was trusting in to trust in Jesus alone. Counting everything as loss, marking a loss over that column, isn't losing. It's actually gaining because in the other column is Christ. And he writes gain over Christ. This is why Paul says, I I can count them as loss. I can count them as rubbish. I mean, that's that's the word for garbage. Uh, King James translates it dung. When it comes to salvation, our deeds are useless at saving us. Rubbish. And let, let me just touch upon a few. Attending church is a great thing, but it's a lousy Savior. And so we have to say, the longer you attend church and the more we might be prone to trust in our church attendance as though that gets us a leg up with God, I have to say, I count my church attendance as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is game. Bible reading is such a blessing, but it's a lousy Savior thinking that if I just read enough that I'm going to be in God's good graces. No, no, I I have to renounce that. I have to count it as loss for the sake of Christ. A godly life is of great value, but not in our salvation, not in saving us, not in justifying us. We have to say, even Lord, the godly life that is a fruit of your spirit within me, Lord, I count that as loss in exchange for the surpassing worth of Christ. This this is a decisive break in these verses, verses 7 and 8. And this is the very essence of a dependent faith, which is where Paul goes in verses 9 through 11. Gaining Christ looks like verse 9, where he says, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What God demands, he provides. He demands righteousness, and he provides righteousness. This righteousness, Paul says, is not of my own. So there's nothing we can do to earn it, nothing we can do to maintain it, but rather, Paul says, I receive the righteousness from God. Sometimes in the scriptures, this is called the righteousness of God, God's own righteousness. Sometimes it's called the righteousness of Christ. It's Christ's earned righteousness. It's of God. You know, there are many places you can go to buy groceries. There are many places you can go to buy a car or fix a car. There is one place you can go for righteousness. He has a monopoly. It's God. He has it. 
We need it. He provides it. What does it cost? What do you have to do? Do you pay for it? No. Can we earn it? No. How do we get it? It says right here, comes through faith in Christ. He says in the next part, he says it's the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Faith. Simply believing. Simply trusting. When a person trusts in Jesus, God, they're they're trusting their unrighteousness. My unrighteousness gets put on Jesus. And he dies for it on the cross. He takes the punishment for my unrighteousness. And then I'm trusting that his righteousness gets placed on my account. His perfect record of doing everything right. And this, this is the great exchange. And it comes to us by simply believing. Simply trusting. The, the fancy theological word for this is justification. Our sin is reckoned to Christ's account. His His righteousness is reckoned to our account. I can't believe that this is true, but oh, church, it is. Emphatically is true. And you just think about it. Church, somebody says to you, well, how did you become righteous? What did you do? Were you actually righteous? No, I wasn't. I didn't do anything. He, He did it for me. I trusted and received it. And Well, Jesus died. What what did he do to deserve death? Nothing. But he became sin for us. And so this is why Paul sounds the alarm like he does against the Judaizers. They are messing with righteousness. There are recipes that you don't want to try, and this is one of them. Jesus' righteousness plus your own righteousness is not a recipe you want to try. We have in Christ alone a glorious salvation that is far too precious to lose. Sinclair Ferguson writes, he says, this is the gospel. Dilute it, add to it, distort it, and all is lost. Believe it, and we will be justified. And so that's what Paul's laying out in verse 9. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. And then he goes from justification in verse 9 to sanctification in verse 10. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ in our attitude and actions and words. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, what's appealing about these Jesus plus theologies, what's appealing about what the Judaizers were saying is they were saying, hey, here's something you need to do. And there is something for us to do, but Paul has already referred to it as working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And now he calls it pressing on to know the Lord, to know his 
power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, empowering our lives to know that him through sharing with him in suffering. I mean, this is amazing that Paul is pressing on to know the Lord and he's been a Christian for 30 years. That encourages me. 30 years and he's like, I just, I just want to know him better. I want to press on to know the Lord. And if he asked me if I knew my doctor, I would have said, yeah, I know my doctor. He's been my doctor for like six, seven years. I've been to him several times over this six, seven years. But actually, just recently, I had to look up his name. I didn't really know him. Like, I, I don't hang out with him. And there's this, it turns out that what Paul is getting at here is he's like, I, I really want to know the Lord. Like, not in a superficial way. I, I want to know the Lord through this. I want to know his salvation. I want to know of his grace. I want to know of his righteousness. And then I want to share in his sufferings. Justification leads to sanctification, where we get to know Jesus as our Lord and know him better and better. And then Paul ends in verse 11 with what's called glorification. He says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And when Paul says, by any means possible, it's not like he's worried, like, oh, cross your fingers, I hope I'm going to be resurrected. No, he's talking about this is his goal. That when he dies, or Jesus returns, he is raised, and he is welcomed, and he knows he won't be welcomed if he puts confidence in what he's done, but he knows he will be welcomed if his confidence is in the righteousness of Jesus Alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So you and I need righteousness, but our default setting is unrighteousness. And the good news over and over again in the Bible is that what God demands, He provides. And Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And when we trust in Jesus alone, Our sin is credited to him. His righteousness is credited to us forever. And this passage and others like it call us to reject all of the dangerous alternatives to that simple message. We're called to make a decisive break with holding on to our good deeds, holding on to what I have or my heritage or my pedigree or whatever to save me. We're called to make a decisive break with trying to earn our salvation and instead to trust in Jesus alone. I can invite the worship team to return. I want to end by asking a few questions, simple questions. First, have you counted your gain as loss? It's a very simple description of a Christian. This is the first step. The beginning of the message, I said there are at least two ways to perish. A person can hold on to their sin and say, oh, God could never save me or I don't need to be saved. Or a person can hold on to their righteousness. Look at what I've done. God surely will save me. Whatever righteousness you think you have, it's not enough. 
I think of the old AT&T commercial, not old, recent, just okay is not okay. Just being okay in our lives and saying I'm a pretty good person is it's not going to cut it. Perfect righteousness is required and what God demands, he provides. So have you counted your gain as loss? A second question. Are you still counting everything as loss? Are you still counting? You, know, you think of the things that can creep in. That as you live your life a little bit, you think, you know, I'm doing better. And now God, God's pretty pleased with me. And yeah, he definitely is going to save me now. Because look at what I've done. And just all the things that can creep in. Are you still counting everything as loss? Isaac Watts wrote many famous hymns. He, one of his lesser known hymns begins with these words. No more, my God. I boast no more. Of all the duties I have done, I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. So are you still counting everything as loss? And a third question, are you watching out? Are you watching out? This moment we read here with Judaizers and dogs and evildoers It's not just for the Philippians' day. It is for our day. It takes on different forms, but at the core, it is a Jesus plus kind of theology. Jesus plus something else. Let us watch and let us rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. That's where God leads us with his word. Let me pray. Lord, we do pray for the protections that you are seeking for this passage to bring to us. Lord, we're also praying just for the the humility that's necessary, Lord, that across this room, no matter how long we've walked with you, Lord, we want to get to know you better and we want to rest in the simplicity of what Christ did and never feel like we graduate from Lord, I I pray that you would help us to just jettison all other trusts and all other appealing alternatives and to be those that trust in Jesus alone that we're able to say, I boast no more. I plead the merits of your son. We are so grateful that what you demand, you have provided the Spirit of God, we boast in Christ Jesus and we desire to put no confidence in